Good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sulcher, and today we're going to be talking with Athena Karp, who is the founder and CEO of Hired Score, an artificial intelligence company that, that uh, sells inside of the Global 500. Athena, how are you? I'm great. How are you, John? I'm fantastic. Would you take a moment and introduce yourself? Sure. I'm first appreciate being on the show and always a pleasure to uh, spend time with you. I'm the CEO and founder of Hired Score, which is a artificial intelligence solution that, as you mentioned, powers hiring across the global Fortune 500, um, supporting internal, external, passive, active, and flexible and permanent workforce decision-making across organizations. That's great. So, so you've got an amazing history. I noticed that you were, last year, you were a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. What is that? Yeah, it's, it's actually an amazing program. Um, about uh, 20, 22 CEO and founders, primarily, um, that the Aspen Institute has selected us to work on um, one leadership, uh, general leadership training and understanding how to move from, you know, um, business, business world into more significant and meaningful impact on society. So I'm actually focused on future of work literacy programs in high schools in impoverished, low-income communities where these students today, um, it might shock you to hear this, John, but there's actually not a single hour of required digital or technical training in any city, state, or federal public school curriculum and focused a lot on how we can help prepare people for the workforce irrespective of where they're born. Interesting, interesting. So just, just to drill down on that a tiny bit, what are the kinds of things that you think people need to be prepared to be in the workforce? Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm not sure that – I don't think I have the answers, but I think if you look, especially on a regional and local level, there's a lot of uh, jobs that are challenging to fill because the talent is not coming prepared um, even without high school, even without college degrees, and I think the staggering cost of college um, is is really impacting how people's high school education can or cannot prepare them for the workforce of the future. So we're we're thinking actually to answer that question, it should be much more of a data driven approach by processing local hiring needs and job requirements um, for roles that do not require college education and feeding that into curriculum. And one of the beautiful things is with online courses, e-learning, and a lot more digital education products and platforms out there, you can actually easy supplement a lot of the skills needed and kind of taking a model where we can also help employers build curriculum that we can have tracks um, in public schools to help for those students who want you know, to focus much more of their time and efforts on being job ready and even starting to work in high school where that's applicable um, to have more um, internship and work opportunities for them. Well, that's a really interesting idea. So, so we could do a whole conversation about that, <laughs> but let's, let's get on to what, what exactly does your company do? 
Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I'd love to talk more about the uh, future of work literacy. I think it's really, really needed and really exciting time for that. Um, in terms of higher score, Me too. Um, <laughs> awesome. Uh, in terms of higher score, we focus a lot on um, how global Fortune 500 organizations, particularly, there's a tremendous amount of data, especially within talent acquisition and talent management today, um, that gets neglected. Just because, you know, I'll give you an example. Some of our clients receive one to three million applications a year and hire one to two percent of those who apply. And it's not that the 99 percent hired are not good candidates or would never make it in these organizations. And, you know, that entire population is then told, we'll get back to you in the future if there's jobs that are relevant. But it's impossible that recruiter every time they have a new role especially if you're filling 25 to 35 recs a month would go through a pile of you know two million past candidates every time there's a new role open probably doesn't even have the data access so you know the things that we think about are where are there pockets across talent acquisition and talent management that are not performed like reviewing people you told you'd get back to in the future or performed but in a inefficient or ineffective manner, a great example in internal mobility is making sure everyone who meets the criteria to move is proactively invited to apply, usually because of politics and relationship dynamics between managers and employees. Not every candidate gets a fair chance at a new job. So we think about it, how do we build um, pockets of um, process augmentation where we can leverage technology to uncover everyone in the past or uncover employees who are viable for promotion in a consistent and fair um, manner, as well as provide candidate scoring for people who apply aligned with job-related criteria and job requirements, not our own criteria and our own requirements. That's interesting. So, so, so it sounds like you're really trying to tackle the way that people develop careers inside of companies. Um, talk, talk to me a little bit more about what you think is broken there. I, I, I often wonder um, whether or not the way things are is a demand for something new. And so, so, so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about, about what you think about how internal hiring works. Yeah, well, I think so. I think just connecting the dots, I mean, one of the things we think about is how can you augment as more and more recruiters are now called talent advisors and are asked to step up and, you know, do a unlimited number of things, which is both surface great passive candidates, find employees who are viable for promotion and relevant, as well as as candidates apply review as many of the qualified people as possible and do that in the most efficient, effective manner. And we think a lot about, you know, that's just way too much work to do um, for any recruiter, let alone given their rec volumes and candidate volumes that we see. So how do we provide, you know, that augmentation layer to support them in doing that? And as we think about internal mobility um, and talent retention, you know, you, you asked particularly like, what do we think is broken? Um, you know, I remember when I worked at a, a large bank on Wall Street, the requirements, if you think about the um, talent management requirements, was, you know, two years minimum time in role 
a minimum performance, you know, criteria, which was being in the two thirds of top two thirds of the class and not the bottom third. Um, and you could even say express in the HCM your desire or willingness to live elsewhere. So I had tagged that I was, you know, I speak some Chinese, uh, that I was willing and desiring to move to our Chinese office, our, our offices in China, um, our office in Hong Kong, um, and office in a, a few other places. Nothing ever, no opportunities ever surfaced other than me proactively finding those new jobs on the career site, applying to them directly, um, and sometimes had been even told, oh, we filled a job just like this a month ago, um, but had you applied last month, we would have definitely had a role for someone who wanted to relocate, um, and I think that's where the breakdown of employees more and more expect and hope that their employer is looking out for their career options and career mobility. Um, and kind of a lot of the burden is put on managers to make sure we see that, especially with the younger workforce, that in an every two-year cycle, you're moved to a job where you can learn new things, progress in your career, and be exposed to potentially new areas of the business or new skills. And yet, even how that data gets stored, that doesn't necessarily mean that it gets surfaced and those people get recommended in an efficient, almost automated way. So that's how we think about internal fetch, which is at the point of a job being created, how do we activate and surface for that talent advisor all of the employees who might be viable for that promotion, put in place good change management so they can approach their HR managers or that person's direct manager and get the approval to approach that employee for the move and or send the employee a proactive ping and let them know based on the areas they've desired career progress and or, you know, relocation or otherwise, here's an opportunity that they might want to apply for. So it just moves from passive, I believe, to proactive. Got it, got it. So, so um, under, underneath these things, workforce literacy, um, um, decreased friction in uh, internal mobility, uh, better access to existing candidate pools. There, there must be some sort of underlying theme here. That's the heart of the company. What's the big question you're trying to answer? Yeah, the big question that I, that we get most excited about is how do we bring um, technologies and process um, in some places automation and in some places augmentation to help companies progress this total talent management strategies they have, where today data is stored and siloed in, you know, multiple systems, and I think even further exacerbated by the increasing complexity of talent acquisitions and HR technology ecosystems. So even with the rise of CRMs and chatbots and video interviews um, and, you know, increasing use of a learning management system, and that all of these components are disconnected, um, even when you have an end-to-end system like a Workday or a SuccessFactors, on a data and on a communication level, those systems aren't truly connected, and there's not an intelligent thread, you know, moving through all of that to surface the relevant information at the right time for that talent acquisition or talent management or that HR business leader stakeholder. And so that is really our goal, which is to say, how do we enable 
data-driven HR agendas for total talent management objectives of organizations. Wow, that's a mouthful of buzzwords. Uh, uh, the, uh, I think what you just said is that with some intelligent technology, you can cut the friction out of uh, HR processes and make them more effective for the company and the employees. Is that another way of saying that? Exactly, and the candidates, whether it's a candidate who um, who applied but got rejected or passive leads that have subscribed um, and and are just sitting in the in the databases and system. So so let's talk about the technology itself. Do you do you call this AI when you talk to people about it? And and what what does AI mean to you? And and what it, what does this what does this stuff actually do? Yeah. So we do call ourselves an artificial intelligence company. Um, since our founding, we have, you know, our, our I think our third hire was uh, data scientists um, in the company, which we've had for about uh, seven years, um, six and a half years almost. Um, and so from that perspective, yes, we, we are an artificial intelligence technology company, but I, I think often AI gets blown out and people assume that that means you know, every part of the technology is black box and full end-to-end automation and decision automation and non-augmentation. And I think that's when we dial it back, as you said, what's in the technology and under the hood. We think a lot of what is our obligation as a company to um, do the right thing and be as ethical as possible in applying the technology we've built. So it's not always about what could we build, but what should we build. Um, and that's where there's certain parts of the process where um, the technology is, you know, um, far less complex than it could be because we believe that the explainability, the transparency of it, um, and almost um, making it more easy to comprehend and audited and logged is more important than using the most cutting edge and optimizing towards success if we don't trust the definition of success. Um, so in different parts of the solution, we use different types of technology. Some are, you know, deep learning, for example, um, um, the ability to comprehend resume data. What is a job? What is a company? What is a time and role? We use quite advanced techniques in that. Uh, but then for other components, it might be just surfacing the end user analytics and reporting for them to have then the power to make the decision, but never automating something like from apply to hire or automating who gets decided to make an interview. So it's really the power of the human and the tech, uh, depending on what type of technology we're using in that part of the workflow. So that's, that's interesting. That, that, that seems to me to mean that rather than replacing people, you are improving the quality of the um, data that they have for decision-making um, inside of the process. Fair? Exactly. Exactly. Or where it's not feasible for a person to have completed a specific task, like look through the CRM and find all the people in pipelines who might be relevant for this role, um, then we can automatically surface those that are relevant, but again, require the human review process and that kind of high-touch um, requirement of vetting what's been surfaced, 
before actual decisions are made, which are only made by human beings, not by algorithms. Cool. So um, there are a few people who claim to do similar things. How are you different from them? Yeah, um, I think some of the biggest differences with us, John, as you know, is um, I kind of break them down into five pillars, which is one, um, really the, the deep focus on compliance, on transparency, on explainability of all the technology that we build and deliver, um, which, which is one thing we think, think makes us quite unique. You know, even going back from 2015 and 16, we've been active in submitting um, information to, you know, for example, the um, EEO's call for submissions on uh, the use of data science um, in, in hiring decisions and really trying to be, I think, thought leaders in how do we responsibly deploy technology in a space that is highly regulated and there are a lot of um, requirements that can and should be followed in where to and where not to use the tech. Um, so I think that that's one key component. Another one is um, building a customized product for every client we work with. So there's a, a lot of vendors that just have an out-of-the-box solution, just a generalist AI. Um, we found that the accuracy, um, the precision of those products um, is not what the client expectation is, as well as could have other risks. So we tailor, and we've almost fully automated that process, tailored the algorithms for every single company we work with, as well as fully configuring it to workflows and company processes and company needs. Um, so whether that's different purge schedules or um, deployments being different in, you know, a localized product in different countries versus a general product because they want one single standard across the globe. Um, so the, the customization is important. The deep seamless integration with existing systems uh, so, you know, to the to the best of our knowledge, having kind of an unparalleled two-way integration and near real-time integration with every third party that our clients' ecosystems have, whether that's ATSs, CRMs, um, scheduling bots or chatbots or video interviews, um, HCMs and LMSs and even VMSs. Um, we really believe in system record theory so that we flow data back to our client system of records at all times and make sure everything is always up to date. Um, so those are, you know, three of, I think, the important, important ones we can mention. And the last is just our track record in working with Fortune 500 clients and delivering actual business impact and ROI. So a lot of new companies are, you know, saying here's the impact we expect to have where we have, you know, um, referenceable Fortune 100 uh, clients that have actually seen and have the numbers behind the impact that our technology has brought to them over the years that they've used us. Cool, cool. So, what are the what are what are your primary ethical concerns? Well, this is this is this is the thing that's starting to catch people. What 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 do you think about when you think about the ethics of using your tool? Yeah, so I, I think it's, you know, there's a lot that is possible with technology, but then do we want to build that and do we want to deploy that in the world is a whole different question. Um, so I, I would say some of the things that concern, you know, if I think are most important is making a decision of 
what do we want to automate versus what do we want to augment and where do we want to make sure there's a human review in various pieces of the process versus an end-to-end automation. So a great example is, you know, scoring candidates who apply but not having that lead to auto status assignments, right? So just because we say this person is an A based on the resume data they've submitted, the application data, maybe an assessment tech they took that was viewed as required, um, we don't think that that should mean that this person gets hired. You must have a human review process to, um, I believe, make the judgment calls. And so this balance of, you know, efficiency and effectiveness and functional performance, but balancing, counterbalancing that with um, kind of a ethical standard of um, where does the technology start and stop and where do the um, human beings uh, really need to be involved. I think it's, it's probably the one of the biggest concerns. Um, another one is just um, the different ethical standards globally. So, you know, we're a company who has our technology live in China, for example, with a localized Chinese solution um, that um, actually has, has won a, a very cool award um, for you know, best AI in HR solution. Um, but, you know, as, a, as the builders of this technology saying, we believe there should be a global standard to what we apply for that product, irrespective if a local standard is looser than that, or um, or there's local vendors that don't follow that standard, and maybe they can have much higher accuracy than we do by using data that we don't believe we should use, but that they don't, you know, ethically have a problem using. So it's trying not to bring our biases that our ethical framework is better than other people's, but making sure as a company we have a very clear standard that we follow consistently around the globe wherever our technology is deployed, um, even if a local standard might be different. That's interesting. So you, you mentioned in a sort of a tangential way bias, and there is a, a fair broad <clears throat> disagreement um, in the AI community about whether or not bias could be removed from results of databases. How do you guys sit on that one? Yeah, so I actually think you have to go back to the beginning and say not question do these data sets have bias, but say they do have bias. We assume that they have bias. And thus, we're going to put the right mechanisms and controls, knowing that there will be bias in that data. And I think a really important question, John, to your point is, there are many different types of bias, right? There's a human action bias. There's a data population bias, right? So I'll, I'll give a great example. If a job requires a PhD in um, statistics, right, there's certain gender groups where if instead of saying PhD in statistics, I said a PhD in a scientific or mathematical field, I would I would have I would be much more inclusive of female candidates as well versus just male candidates by kind of broadening that. So I think it's um, a requirements bias we see in the data set, but also a population bias as a result often of what those requirements bias, where, you know, we can't count on our clients or, you know, companies 
to change the education system in the U.S. and increase the amount of people that have these specific degrees. So you have to kind of in some places accept and then try to build programs like, you know, future of work literacy that will change the population differences, um, but then internally be cognizant of those and maybe have a whole different process for how you um, define job requirements as a result of that. So I think classifying the different type or versus an algorithm bias, right, um, or a technology tool bias, um, or even a digital bias, right, so that we require applicants to apply online and say no paper resumes, does that preclude certain age groups um, and certain types of workers who might not be digital natives or digital savvy enough to be able to fill out an application? So I think there's so many different types of bias. We need to understand what's generating um, differences and then what is the appropriate mechanism to combat it, to even it out, or potentially to change policies and processes to account for that. So does your tool do anything specific about the bias that it discovers? Absolutely. Um, I think that's a really important point. Um, yeah, so one of the, the biggest things that we do um, up front when we start working with a client is to say, you know, we're not your lawyers um, or employment lawyers, and so we're not going to to show or um, create discoverable evidence of what are differences in offer rates or interview rates by ethnicity groups and gender groups, for example. But assuming that they're probably not equal for any number of reasons, we don't want that data to go into the algorithm and train it in an imbalanced way. So we actually have an automatic tool that goes through that data and creates even sets of populations for any machine learning that happens for launch or ongoing learning. So actually ongoing learning is a really important topic, which is post go live, you might have verified that the data you learned from was always even, but then you start learning from, you know, recruiter actions and feedback, and now you've skewed what was a um, unbiased learning data set. So we make sure um, both data out of the box and all ongoing learning is evened out by group uh, so that it's always a fair representation, even within job-related criteria. Um, another thing we do is extensive testing to make sure the um, features we are using to score candidates are only job-related features. So, John, we see a lot of um, decisions made based on these lines in the resume called extracurriculars and special interests. Um, and what we say is, you know, you shouldn't be looking for the word golf or a fraternity name unless you're hiring a golfer and you actually need five years of golfing experience, um, then that's not a job-related criteria, as well as, you know, continuing to build features that exclude things like zip codes and actual distance versus commutable buckets of 30 miles, 60 miles, uh, 90 miles, so that you're giving everyone in a radius a fair chance. Um, so all kinds of features and control, and then testing our product for every single client to make sure it, it treats the same candidates, you know, candidates with the same qualifications, irrespective of race and gender, um, the same way. So we have quite a lot of tests for that as well. Got it. Well, um, so let's let's just wrap it. We've gotten um, well through our time together. Uh, how do you let your clients know which of the processes they're using have intelligence in them and uh, which don't? 
Yeah, actually, that's that's a re- it's a really interesting topic because I think um, you know when we come in the front door or we're being vetted or evaluated by our client, we are, as you say, an artificial intelligence technology. Um, so we have to go through a lot of scrutiny for um, things like compliance and proactive bias mitigation. Um, you know, only leveraging and storing and processing data that is absolutely required. So minimizing data, um, only data that's been consented, et cetera. I think one of the things we're thinking a lot about is um, the systems we often integrate with might deploy AI features, sometimes without even the client knowing that those features are using AI or that those features are using data that a candidate might not have consented to um, or publicly scraping data. That, you know, I think in an increasing data privacy cognizant world, just because data can be found on Google doesn't mean a person wants you to use that data to evaluate them for employment opportunities. Um, And so I think just trying to bring light to what are the vetting processes that any vendor, whether AI is your core product or if there's AI components as secondary products within your solution should go through, um, which is part of where, you know, I know, John, you're supporting a a global working group that I'm on as well in building um, frameworks for um, vetting and analyzing artificial intelligence for HR products, which would be global standards. And I think as we look, you know, 12, 24 months ahead, just making sure those standards aren't just being applied to products whose core or primary is AI, but for any AI components inside of your, for example, HR ecosystem. Cool. Well, this has been a great conversation. We could do another hour or two. I'm sorry that the format constrains it. Um, Thanks for taking the time to do this. Would you reintroduce yourself and tell people how they might get a hold of you? Absolutely. Well, always such a pleasure and really appreciate the thought-provoking and cutting-edge questions. Um, my name is Athena Karp, uh, CEO and founder of Hired Score. Uh, feel free to reach out and contact me at athena at hiredscore.com. Thanks very much. We've been speaking with Athena Karp, CEO and founder of Hired Score. Um, you might catch her for lunch sometime if she happens to be in New York City. Uh, Thanks for tuning in. Really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, uh, and we will see you back here next week. Bye-bye now. 